This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Real Madrid lift the European Cup for the 14th time then. One shot on target, one goal, one incredible goalkeeper. An ageless, ageing midfield. Danny Carvajal with the game of his life. An absolutely extraordinary journey to the final where they were dead and buried three times. And now this, a 1-0 win over Liverpool where maybe they weren't the better team, but it also feels like they thoroughly deserved it. Carlo Ancelotti now the most successful manager in the history of this competition. And what of Liverpool? Was playing in every single game this season just a little bit too much? Did Trent Alexander-Arnold show us that vulnerability we all think he has? Or did they simply come up against the best version of Thibaut Courtois? We will, of course, talk about what happened happened to the Liverpool fans before and after the game with UEFA and the French authorities desperate to blame the bottlenecks and crushes on the supporters while the trouble was happening amid stories of kids getting pepper sprayed. We'll speak to people who were there in what looks like an abject failure in organisation. Also today, delight for Grimsby, Port Vale and Western United. An important musical question for John Bruin, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Thomas says... Real Madrid play for approximately 8% of the full 90 minutes of a typical Champions League game. When will the panel finally rise to this level of performance? Let's find if they've got 8% within them today. Barry Glendenning, hello. Hi, Max. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you. John Bruin, hello. Good morning, Max. And in Paris, Jonathan Wilson. Good morning. Morning. How are you doing? I'm all right. John says, uh, in the last six days, I've witnessed defeat at Wembley with Wrexham, lost the Premier League to Man City, watched Wrexham lose 5-4 in the 119th minute of the playoffs today, and Liverpool lose the Champions League tonight. Can anyone beat that? Football is a bastard. And Tom says, by the way, four years down the line, I'm still waiting for Modric to get tired. Um, The game itself, where do we start? Should we start with Thibaut Courtois? Michael says, how many of those saves would Barry have made? He was Barry sensational yesterday and two of those saves were world class yeah he was uh, outstanding and it was particularly heartwarming to see after the game that he apparently was inspired by not being put on a list of top 10 goalkeepers (laughs) some magazine or other and because some weirdos on twitter were giving him abuse when he was at Chelsea. So I like that. Spite is a great motivation, and I'm wholeheartedly in favour of it. It was an outstanding performance by him, and I suppose one of those performances where Liverpool will perhaps are entitled to feel slightly aggrieved that he played so well, but he's as much a member of the Real Madrid team as any of the outfield players, and he's part of a defence that kept Liverpool scoreless for well then now that's three cup finals in a row as we've heard or, or as we all know and has been pointed out that they have failed to score he had Mo Salah beating the ground and howling with frustration and that's quite a good place to be for a goalkeeper I suppose you were there uh, Wilson um 
I don't know if he, if we are in the stadium, he looks bigger than your average goalkeeper. But those moments, it's very hard to see when you're watching it live. You, you can't see that the fingertips he saves from from Mane specifically. Yeah, I mean the the I think it's probably the last of the, of the saves was the one that was really, looked really impressive. Where when Salah, you know, with two brilliant touches, suddenly was bearing down on goal, and he opened up his body, and we've all seen that that Salah finish a million times, and you sort of think, oh, they are because I'd sort of just got into the mindset of. Oh, they're never going to equalise here. This is one nil, and it, you know, in that moment, you thought, "No, this this is it, actually." And then suddenly, you just sort of see this green arm shooting up and and pushing the ball away. And the way that Madrid's defence reacted to that save, there's, there's three of them immediately jumped on him. At the final whistle, Luka Modric ran straight to to Courtois, so they were clearly very aware uh, of of how how exceptional this performance had been. So I, I think after that save from 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 Salah, you sort of think. There's no way through. And I, I presume, John, like all the Real Madrid players, this was like his 10th Champions League title. But actually, it's it's Courtois' first. And I, and I think he spoke about 2014 as well when he was playing for Atleti against Real Madrid in the final, letting that goal from Ramos in injury time. And, and so this is kind of a... You know, he's pretty sure of himself. We know that. He was asked before the game, who are the two most important players? He went, well, me and Karim Benzema. But it's still a great moment for him. Yeah, absolutely. And... and... This thing about him not getting respect in England, um, I think when he was at Chelsea, uh, one of the problems he had, of course, that he succeeded Petr Cech, who is probably the greatest of all Chelsea goalkeepers, give or take Peter Bonetti. Uh, and um, there were problems at Chelsea, weren't there? That he, he wasn't considered mobile enough in that modern uh, goalkeeping style where you've got to play the bit the ball at your feet, which I don't think he's still the best at. But in a team like Real Madrid, which has, I mean, their defence is almost like a, and Jonathan will correct me here, I'm sure, but some sort of catenazio effect on that game, which is they sat back, defend deep. My memory of the game, when I think back in the image of it, it's, you know, Edar Militao winning everything in the air. Uh, Danny Carvajal, as you said in the intro, Max, absolutely killing it. Uh, David David Alaba is you know, a very, very good defender. And players sweeping up in front of them and the ball going to Modric and him controlling the ball and buying time and and, and taking the sting out of Liverpool. But uh, you need your goalkeeper to be on form as well if you're going to sit up and soak up pressure. And Courtois came through. He arrived in England with a very big reputation. I don't think he lived up to, but I do think um, now, after that performance, he could probably consider himself in the top 10 goalkeepers in the world. (laughs) <laughs> if you're listening, Thibaut, you've just about made it, mate. So uh, don't get too angry about this. So, so Wilson, do you, is there a sense that Real Madrid kind of athleted their way to win this game? No, no not really, because I, I don't think there was the, the, the level of aggression or, you know, this wasn't about the dark arts. They just sat deep and... and uh, I mean, I have to say, I was slightly surprised when I looked at the stats and saw Liverpool had 24 shots to four. I mean, I knew Liverpool had more, but that, that felt... Twenty-four to four felt more than it than it did in 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 the moment, and and uh, Klopp referred to that afterwards. He, you know, he was sort of saying, "Well, we only really had three chances where he thought that the Liverpool were going to score." So I, I guess that that is a sign of good defending that you you know you, you're you're restricting the opposition to to long range shots um, or, or you know chances where where you know, with a with a low xG. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess it just sort of followed the narrative of everything that had gone before. You just sort of. When you saw that break coming, and I, I was sat next to Barney, and we were both sort of going, why, why is Alexander-Arnold not looking over his shoulder? Why is, 
Well, you must know that this is. Oh, he doesn't know his thing. Oh no. Did he actually on that on the, on the goal? I mean, I don't know if that decide that that you know obviously that is the moment that defines this game in a way. Um, and but but did he man tweeted? Look, if you look at where the actually just where the ball comes from from Valverde and where it goes, even if he knew he actually he was you know he's perfectly in line, so he's basically playing the perfect line, Trent Alexander Arnold there. That actually defensively sometimes you just can't do anything, or is that giving him a free pass? I think the cross from Valverde is is pretty much perfect. I just think that the the, the point is in that whole break, Alexander never gets within three yards of Vinicius. I don't know if it's, you know if he could have checked his run slightly just to just to get in his way. It sort of felt almost like you know he's like a moving cone rather than being a defender. I mean, it was right in right in line because you know Barney and I were on the left side of the press box as you looked at the pitch, so it it, it was exactly where. You know, where where the goal happened, and and for sort of a good, I mean, it probably wasn't that long, but it felt like about five minutes before. Well, it definitely wasn't five minutes. For a good sort of five seconds before the goal, or maybe half a second, I don't know. But for a period of time, it felt significant before the goal. We were both going, why is it? What what? It's it's just going to go to Vinicius. He's going to say, oh, it's, <laughs> that's exactly what's happened. Why why are we not stopping that? How, how often are you and Barney sitting next to each other, sort of Nostradamus like Maradona's? That he's going to handball that and then. It happens. Does that is this a sort of very regular occurrence that you sort of predict? I don't, well, not 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 these days because Barney and I very rarely do the same games because we're yeah now now that we work for the same paper on a more sort of regular basis, uh, it's it's never really it's more sat than Waldorf and Nostradamus <laughs> as well to be honest. <laughs> what what's it like sitting beside Barney at a game? Does he bring Haribo? Does he does he bring interesting chat? But what does he or does he just get exasperated a lot? He had some kind of. Uh, some kind of plant-based product with salt and pepper. Very nice. He's very kind in sharing them around. It's it's a it's a very pleasant experience. I can recommend it to, to anybody. Unless you're you're asking what are you writing about, so I can write something different. And he he seems very reluctant to commit to that at an early stage, shall we say? Oh, you can't copy his homework. Uh, that's what you're just looking. Are you like peering over his shoulder, going? Oh, I'm peering over his shoulder, so I don't write the same thing. Because he won't tell me what he's writing. <laughs> Manuel says, do you think the Vinicius goal was meant to be in the 93rd minute, but due to the delay, it was scored 30 minutes earlier? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and actually, in that build-up to the goal, there was one pass from Modric with his left foot between the lines. And he, John, is, he's just so sensationally good, Modric. And it just seems ridiculous that three are still at the top of football and I just don't know when when do they I mean Camavinga's come in a lot in this tournament right he's sort of come off the bench for Tony Crows or whatever but still those three are delivering at this elite level when I'm sure all of us have written them off at some point I've done it a million times yeah it's for uh, people have written off Casemiro I think he's only 30 but he's got through he's got through so much running and so much so much work over the years that you think that he's run himself into the ground and Cruz, I think he's only 32, but Modric, the master, uh, the best midfielder, I would say, in Europe over the last 10 years. The only one to win a Ballon d'Or, of course. And um, it, it's the, the cliche, isn't it? The best players have the most time on the ball. Well, there isn't anybody that, take, that has as much time on the ball as Modric. At any point, he receives the ball, or whatever angle he receives it, he makes the time to take the ball, play the pass, and then read the pass two or three ahead so that he can be there to receive the ball back from the third player in the line. He is a sensational player. And I wouldn't say he gets better with age, but in his in his old age, and he may well play on for, for longer, who knows, he's still got it. 
He's, um, maybe he didn't dominate the first half in the way that you'd expect the world's best midfielder to do. But when Real Madrid needed to buy time to, to soak up pressure, give the ball to Modric, he'll find a way out of the problem. And yeah, a brilliant, brilliant player. Um, and it's been an absolute privilege to watch him over his career. Uh, I did see a tweet that we received saying, asking if he regretted leaving Spurs. <laughs> Probably as much as Ancelotti regrets leaving Everton, right? Well, absolutely, look, look, Barry, yes. We'll get on to um, Liverpool's performance, but it is worth considering this Real Madrid run to the final. You know, the teams that they've had to get past and the way they've done it and all these moments, you know, that Courtois save from Grealish with his studs and injury time, like the, the you know, Rodrigo's two goals, Benzema's sort of ludicrous hat-trick against PSG, etc. It's been... I can't, I can't remember a, a more ridiculous set of games to get to a final. Yeah, it's been quite a white-knuckle ride for them and you can't say they don't deserve it given the teams they've beaten and the manner in which they've beaten them. Uh, PSG, Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool. And bear in mind that in the group stages we were all laughing at them because they got beaten by Sheriff uh, Tiraspol and everyone thought it was hilarious and indicative of some calamitous demise. Uh, for Real Madrid, so I I don't begrudge them at all. I'm not a fan of Real Madrid as an institution or a club, but I find it hard to begrudge them because they provided so much astonishing entertainment. You know, last night was only a one nil, but I loved every minute of the game. It was fantastic. Although it was still only the second best game I saw yesterday. We'll get to that later, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and. Uh, I love Carlo Ancelotti. I, I'm old enough to remember him winning the, the Champions League as a player uh, with AC Milan. And looking at him now, it's it's hard to believe he was once a magnificent footballer in a brilliant AC Milan side, but he was. Uh, kids, ask your fathers or grandfathers. And um, yeah, it is a fantastic achievement for them. And uh, yeah, I, I don't begrudge him it one bit. Danny Ceballos said, uh, when I saw all those players, Karim, Carvajal, Modric playing cards just a few hours before the game, I thought, wow, well, there's a calmness. Anyway, I couldn't even sleep the siesta. Um, are they are they punching above their weight? This is a ridiculous question about to ask about Real Madrid, John. But, but you know, given the finances that other clubs have, or is that a completely ludicrous question? Well, it, it's almost as if they're rather existing on old money a bit, aren't they? Because Karim Benzema was a huge signing back in 2009. Luka Modric was a big signing back in 2011. I think that's that's about right. Um, the issue that they've got, and it is, it has been a big issue for them before this game, is how do you regenerate Real Madrid uh, beyond this old guard? Obviously, we've had the uh, Mbappe affair. Uh, L'Affaire Mbappe, you might call it. Quite pleased, you're quite pleased with yourself there, John. It's, a, it's early on a Sunday morning. Yeah, oh for, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A bit of French, but well done. No, a bit of bit of franglais yeah. for the for le matin. <laughs> there you go. But um, but yeah. but I think is I think we thought this was the end of the empire when Cristiano Ronaldo left. They clearly thought it was the end of the empire because they've involved themselves in this Super League nonsense and. You know, it, the joke is, isn't it? Of course, the team that didn't want to be in a competition wins it the next year. Um, it, it, they are relying a little bit on old money. But then again, there are young players like uh, Vinicius Jr. coming through. Uh, you mentioned Camavinga, you know, who's the most wanted young midfielder. And they, they will 
it, it seems to me that, that they'll be picking around the fringes of uh, of the star players, but they aren't signing the Harlands and the Mbappes these days. So the team is going to regenerate a little bit. But um, the idea of Real Madrid, uh, which is something that Florentino Perez, in his post-match quotes, painted as some sort of battle against the petrodollar, this this rebel outside a club, this underdog. Uh, you can't really do that because it's Real Madrid, the most haughty institution in all of football, let's face it. Barry, you said that losing this final would constitute a, a disappointing season for Liverpool. I mean, do you stand by Have they had a poor season? I think so, yeah. On the face of it, they... You know, less than a week ago, this day a week ago, there was talk of the quadruple. This day a week ago, they looked like they were minutes away from snatching the title and they they didn't win it. That's fair enough. The possible quadruple everyone was talking about, they've won the two most minor trophies and failed in the two mega trophies. Now, if you're a Liverpool fan and you've been following them or going to games I'm sure it's been a a wonderful season and a very entertaining season they've played every single game they could have played in but I think the record books will show this season for them was no better than the George Graham Arsenal double cup winning team that uh, as as people have unkindly pointed out had Steve Morrow in it (laughs) even if he was missing (laughs) for the FA Cup final because Tony Adams dumped him on the ground and broke his collarbone by accident. Look, Liverpool fans will scoff, and but I, I think if I was a Liverpool player, and it's recency bias as well, because they've lost the two most recent big trophies available. If I was a Liverpool player waking up this morning, I would be gutted. Hmm. I mean, there is a question, Wilson, about, you know... At this level, right, these fine margins, right at the top, um, as Jonathan says, why have supposedly free-scoring Liverpool managed to play three finals this season and not score a single goal? Is over 330 minutes of football bad luck or something else? And also, look, they didn't, in the league, they didn't beat Man City once, Chelsea once, or Tottenham once. So so when they come up against the, inverted commas, best teams, okay, it's harder, but they don't have a victory. Man City in the semi-final of the FA Cup, I think that City played a sort of slightly weakened team. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a very good point. I mean, the, the, the odd thing about the margins, give, given how much money Liverpool have, winning the Cups, you know, beating, I don't, who did they beat in the FA Cup? Forrest and Norwich and Cardiff and Shrewsbury? Was that the run before they, they played City in the semi? I couldn't tell you why I'm last week, Wilson. Not a good <laughs> Yeah, they, they should win those games. So there's a sense in which winning, the, winning a Cup is, is winning a Cup. It's a great achievement. But there's a sense that that's less of an achievement than staying within touching distance of City in the league. To be getting over 90 points in the league season is, in historical terms, you know, incredibly difficult. Very, very few teams have done it. And that's, that's a problem, I think, of the financing in modern football, that their greatest achievement is, is not the stuff they've won and the stuff they've just missed out on. But, but that, you know, that's slightly side issue to why can they not do it against the, the, the very biggest, very best teams? I mean, Klopp's got this issue in finals generally, that six finals between 2013 and 2018, they failed to win. Yeah, but two they have won, they needed penalties. And there, you know, you give Klopp credit because he brought in Neuro Elf, uh, the, you know, that German neurological firm. And that's, 
I don't know how much difference that makes, but they've scored 18 out of 19 penalties in shootouts this season in finals, which, which suggests it's going pretty well. He just needs Neuer Svolf for the actual game, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah. Are, are those the lads that put that thing on Trent Alexander-Arnold's head in training yeah. that make him look like Doc yeah. from Back to the Future? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, they kept it on so he couldn't turn around to see <laughs> Vinicius <Yeah>. Junior. <laughs> that, that was an issue. Can I just say, actually, in Trent Alexander-Arnold's defence, because I see he's been getting a lot of abuse on Twitter, which is no great surprise, some of it from Liverpool fans. He sent in at least five brilliant crosses mm-hmm. last night. That, and Liverpool should should have scored from at least three of them. Um, so, yeah, I think he deserves a, a bit of a break. He he was outstanding going forward. He was, but it's pretty unfortunate he did that, that interview with Donald McRae in the build-up to the final, for which the headline was, I can see things that other players can't. <laughs> yes, but not the opposing left winger when he's making a pretty basic run. Uh, yeah, John, do you... Do you think Liverpool have tired? I mean, Richard says towards the end of the season, Liverpool have lacked ideas going forward. Have they been found out? Would Mane or Salah leaving be that much of a disaster? I thought Firmino, they were more threatening when Firmino came on. I mean, there's an important point that footballers can get tired, however many things you put on their heads and electrodes, because they've they've had to just be at it every single game for this whole season. Yeah, I think so. Um, Jonathan is is better placed than me, but you know you you have these ideas that you have these teams that play every game in a season like Leeds United going back to the late sixties, early seventies, and miss out on trophies. But I think we consider them, you know, fifty years on a great team, and I think we'll probably consider Liverpool a great team for for going so close. But I think that's true. I think they peaked maybe March, April. Um, I think perhaps I mean he's been a great signing, but I think Luis Diaz. Wasn't that convincing? Mane, not that convincing. Um, Salah, certainly not that convincing since he's come back from the Cup of Nations. And and I think Liverpool have, in certain games, in big pressure games, I think there is something of a mental block there. Uh, or there has appeared to be a mental block there. And I think that also happened in Paris last night. Um, is tiredness a factor in that? It has to be, doesn't it, after such a long season? But I do think that um, as, as brilliant a football as that Liverpool play, they do lack that extra dimension. And, you know, as good as Trent Alexander-Arnold is coming forward as a playmaker from the right wing, it can be a little bit predictable. That's why they signed Thiago, I think, isn't it? To change up the style of play. Uh, and it took them very far this season. But I, think, I think on that point, it's significant. Yeah, Thiago in the wall clearly wasn't happy. Yes, it, was, yes. it was obvious to us all. And the, there was, you know, the, the the players were in two groups. So there was the group that was starting and the group that wasn't starting. And Navi Keita moved from from the non-starting to the starting group. And Thiago was training by himself. So I think there was doubt over his fits. And he didn't impose himself no, at all. But no. I think the fact that Klopp played him from the start when there there were such obvious concerns suggests just how much he felt they needed that that creativity that he brings and that extra control that he brings. Well, judging by Cater's shot towards the end of the game. <laughs> oh, God, that was terrible. If <laughs> uh, in doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Ali says, I was watching the UEFA feed and Don Goodman, the co-com, had to step in as lead commentator when the main commentator, Tony Jones, lost his voice at half-time and did a wonderful job. Which one of the pod members had ever had to step in for a job they weren't qualified for to that scale? That was the commentary team that we had. And it's always quite fun when I get the script, you know, the day before we're doing the Europe, the whichever Champions League game, it says commentators 
Andy Hinchcliffe and Peter Drury. I go, oh, it's them, you know. And it was like Tony Jones and Don Goodman. I was like, oh, I said, we had Peter Drury for the conference league. But anyway, so we do all our build up and then we go, and then, you know, you always have to do it in the same way. Uh, let's get the first half. Your commentary team is Don Goodman and Tony Jones. And then, <laughs> and then it just cuts to this man going, hello, it's the uh, Champions League final. His voice had absolutely gone. <laughs> it was totally gone. Poor bloke at laryngitis. I mean, presumably he noticed before. The, before unless it was like, you know, when Alan Brazil goes into talk sport and he doesn't make a noise until it's five past six. So that's his first noise. But honestly, it was like absolutely, I was in... Like, it was funny because obviously it's the Champions League final, but we're on free-to-air TV as well as, you know, Stan, and everyone's like, oh, I've got to take this seriously. And the commentator can't talk. <laughs> I was in fits. Well, he's he's done a Harry Kane on it, hasn't he? He's <laughs> clearly declared yeah. himself fit for the big game <laughs> yeah. and then let the side down because he obviously wasn't. <laughs> So credit to Don Goodman. We actually then took the BT commentary commentary team. So like, I didn't hear Don Goodman doing the trophy lift on his own. <laughs> Poor Don in a booth somewhere trying to do this. But I did switch to BT, which meant, as we were talking about before the pod, I got the uh, injury time plug for Solihull Moors versus Chesterfield, which I thought the timing was absolutely hilarious. Like, of course, look, we'll get on to Wrexham Grimsby. But I thought that timing was beautiful, John. Mid- midday today, uh, as advertised at the 93rd minute by Fletch. Lovely. Uh, I'm fired up for that game. It's the game of the weekend for me. Uh, come on, Solihull Moors. Uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Actually, talking to people called into uh, to do a job they're not used to, let's credit Jonathan Wilson here uh, for uh, his uh, reporting on what went on before and after the game with uh, with fans, very good, Jonathan. Let's let, let, oh, let's let's, let's credit him with that. I, w- I was very much out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get onto that in one second. Just a couple of. I thought I liked. Um, you know, obviously you've had all this delay, you've had all this panic, and then they they have this opening ceremony where you're like, nobody, literally not a person wants this. As Richard Osman tweeted, this is about as welcome as a game of five-a-side would be before a Camilla Cabello gig. He's absolutely right. I thought she performed admirably and very well. Just don't need it. Uh, yeah, the thing is, they wouldn't normally show that, would they? Normally they'd keep to, you know, Michael Owen and and, uh, and Stephen Gerrard talking and talking, but they talk so much in that delay that... And, and Michael Owen talking about how no one could know what had caused this and just again and repeating and repeating and the, it, just the relief on Jake Humphrey's face. Uh, I th- a, a, a friend of mine noticed that um, at one point Jake Humphrey took his earpiece out. He was so exasperated with what was going on. It was... Uh, it was. I mean, all credit. They got the show on the road. Well, he's been on. He's he's been he on quite a journey. Yeah, yeah. So you know. And to be fair, he did go to the correct stadium in the end. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, look, that'll do. That'll do for part one. Uh, it's interesting you say that because there was so much to look ahead to this game. We were actually quite pleased to have an extra forty-five minutes to say, look, we can start breaking down things tactically and look at you know all those things that you sort of are really pushed for time when you've only got like a. Half hour lead in. Anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two, we will talk about what Jonathan Wilson was reporting on what happened outside the stadium. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Jamie says, is mentioning the live shows a guaranteed way of getting on the podcast as he used them as a transition to plug the events? It absolutely is, Jamie. And we have a live tour. Go to myticket.co.uk. Leeds on the 13th of June with uh, this exact panel of people. Um, uh, Birmingham, um, me, Barry, John Bruin, joined by Jordan Jarrett Bryan, Lars Sivitson and Philippe O'Claire in Manchester, Lars and Mark Langdon in Dublin on two nights, Troy Townsend, Jonathan Wilson, Nicky Bandini in Hackney on the 8th of July, Ellis James, Barney, Ronnie Sidlow on the 9th, Philippe O'Claire and Jonathan Wilson in Glasgow on the 13th, myticket.co.uk. Um, I've scheduled a lot of tweets, so I hope they don't come out at sort of inopportune moments. Um, let's talk about what happened off the pitch then uh, with the Liverpool fans trying to get in and what happened to Liverpool fans as they left the stadium as well. Um, Rob Harris joins us, global sports correspondent from, from AP. Hey, Rob. Hey there. I'm just going to read this email from Dan, uh, who said, long time listener, first time emailing, I'm currently travelling back from Paris. I felt I had to share my experiences gaining entry to the ground last night. I arrived at the stadium at 7pm. I didn't get through gate Y until 8.15. It was an absolute mess. Those with genuine tickets being told by stewards their tickets are fakes when they wouldn't scan for entry. Fans without tickets jumping the fence or just desperate attempts by ticketed fans to get in for the biggest game of our season. Uh, there were definitely fans and locals trying to blag their way in or rush and push their way in. I thought you weren't able to get close to the turnstiles without a ticket, but mine was never checked before the turnstiles. The turnstiles were blocked by big metal gates at Gate Y. These were open and closed constantly to control the flow of people through and prevent the turnstiles becoming overrun. But this was never communicated. Every time they shut, you didn't know if they'd open again. Every time they shut those big metal gates, they'd push, shove and crush people back against the barriers. At one point, a fan inside told us there were five down injured the other side of the gate getting medical assistance eventually there was some communication from the stewards telling us how long to expect to wait before they let us in 90% of those in the queues at that time behaved impeccably and remained calm once they opened the gates again one steward came out looking for a fight and had to be calmed by other stewards tensions were so high kids were terrified I'm 33 I found it terrifying over the hour in which I got closer to those entrance gates watching the madness in front of me all I could think was how is it the only way I'm getting to see Liverpool play the Champions League final is by risking my health to get through all of that. This is what I saw and experienced. Some blame lies on both sides, but the organization, communication and treatment was so bad, I was lucky to get in. Most of the seats around me remained empty throughout the game. This was my first European Cup final. I don't think I want to go to another one. Look, thanks for getting in touch, Darren. Um, look, we're glad you're okay. Uh, Rob, you were going in and out of the ground. Um, I saw you sort of posting videos as well. What was your experience of, of last night? I mean, it did seem a logistical chaos. It's organizationally, there were flaws. And I experienced them even arriving at the stadium around three hours or so before kickoff. So we had the fan experience. We were tackling the issues in terms of the uh, train line being down one of them because of the strike, went on another one, got into the stadium area and started to encounter a lack of information. Few people to actually guide fans initially, large queues as well, uh, just to get in, bottlenecks starting to form. And myself and a fellow journalist, 
being given wrong information in terms of just where we were even going to. So that was just a sort of snapshot. And it took us about an hour to get into the right place as well, which sort of showed uh, the issues around three hours before the game, particularly that significant when, of course, that UEFA statement was made in the stadium announcing that delay was due to fans turning up late. Well, there were a lot of fans there early and the challenges were actually them getting in. And that was certainly what was witnessed outside immediately the inner security perimeter where they were showing their uh, tickets down to get them scanned. There were just hundreds there were, of Liverpool fans, so many of them who were waiting patiently, if not very frustrated about the, uh, you know, the struggles to get in and the infrastructure's inability to cope with filtering them into the, uh, the stadium. UEFA made a statement in the lead up to the game, the turnstiles at the Liverpool end became blocked by thousands of fans who purchased fake tickets, which did not work in the turnstiles. This created a build-up of fans trying to get in. As a result, the kickoff was delayed by 35 minutes to allow as many fans as possible with genuine tickets to gain access. As numbers outside the stadium continued to build up after kickoff, the police dispersed them with tear gas and forced them away from the stadium. UEFA is sympathetic to those affected by these events and will further review these matters urgently together with the French police and authorities and with the French Football Federation. Look, you were there as well, Wilson. What surprised me was how UEFA made such a categoric statement about what happened while it was still happening. Well, and changed it as well. So it started off saying, it, you know, fans were having late. But I mean, I, I, I got there a couple of hours before Rob. I, I was there, uh, you know, as, as John knows, I like to get to the stadium early. So they opened the gates to the media at four in theory, though in practice it didn't actually open until near a half four. The, the scanners for, for our passes weren't working. Uh, perfectly, so I had a bit of a problem getting in. Um, so you know that, that idea that that just because they couldn't scan your ticket means your ticket was counterfeit. I'd be very skeptical of that. Uh, so yeah, they, they they said it was down to fans arriving late. By the end of the game, that that changed to to this counterfeit ticket thing, which again I, I just don't know how you would know that at that stage without without a proper investigation. To to get to the, the the corner of the ground where the problem seemed to be, which happened to where the media entrance was, to sort of gate you the southwest corner of the ground. You would naturally go to the RER station D, and then you go along the sort of a, 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 I think it's like a, a three carriageway road, and there's a pavement sort of built up on on the stadium side of that. So it's quite a narrow area anyway, and police had had sort of blocked the the access road to that, uh, which made sense. Blocked it to cars, but then nobody was allowed to walk on that. You had to walk on the pavement, which they then semi-blocked with two police vans parked over the pavement. Now, I assumed at, at 4 p.m. French time that they were just there because they were unloading and they, they'd moved, but they, those vans were still there at kickoff. And so that led to immediately to a, to a crush, and presumably that was a deliberate effort to try and slow the flow of people to the ground. But what I don't understand is why tickets weren't being checked as you came out of the RER station, that that's a big, big road that was closed. You could have put up checks there quite easily. And that would have been a way to filter away fans without tickets or to sort any problems with, with tickets that weren't scanning or, or fake tickets way before you got anywhere near the stadium. So why, I, I just don't understand, but that seems to me really, really obvious. I don't understand why, why that wasn't done. And then clearly there was yeah, horrendous overreaction from French police, which has been a feature of football in France, I mean, I remember back in two thousand and seven, doing a it was Lille v Manchester United, but the game was played in in Lens because the Lille Stadium was being renovated, and United fans were not behaving particularly well. It should be said, but there was uh, behind the goal there was uh, a fence, and United fans in an enclosure there, which was very clearly overcrowded, and there was a bit of panic, and French police just fired tear gas in, and that seems to be their first reaction to any build up of people is fire tear gas, but obviously. 
that then affects people who are just can't get out of there and it creates panic. So yeah, that, that, that appeared to be what happened last night as well. And I, I know that, you know, I don't know if Rob got caught up in this, but but his colleague, Steve Douglas, uh, was was bundled into a room by French police and made to delete delete footage of what he'd, he'd filmed. Yeah, that was something that did happen. And uh, I experienced it myself as well when I was actually by one of the gates trying to show what was happening filming on my phone. There was an intervention by stewards trying to stop me filming the police and actually... You know, it did get quite forceful with them. And having seen already and heard of that experience just a few minutes earlier, I actually sprinted across to UEFA officials back closer towards the stadium straight away, knowing actually it was better to be with them. And they actually then intervened to try to get the the, um, the stewards to, and, and the, you know, the security officials, as it were, and the police to ensure that our media rights were being protected because our conversations with those fans that did become ones through the fence were helping to inform actually what was going on to actually show what was going on. And also in cases to show clearly, for instance, the fact as people were trying to climb over the fences, people without any identifiable club colours, there were Liverpool fans chanting for them to get down, get down uh, to deter them from doing so. And, you know, this was something that was unfolding even as the game was underway. And talking about that sort of tear gas first strategy, the game, what was, I think it might have been about 20 minutes old at that point, perhaps. And the riot police were firing tear gas from the inner security area, right by the press entrance. You'd already gone through the ticket scanning turnstiles. They were firing it outside beyond the fences when there can't be that many people I could see beyond there, but it was mean, seen as a sort of just first resort means of trying to disperse the um, the people who, again, didn't look like from afar that they were any identifiable fans of the team. But, perhaps with those people trying to get in. Uh, we had so many messages from Liverpool fans who had a terrible experience. We also got this question from Luke saying, will Football Weekly be, be ignoring the videos of Liverpool fans climbing over the barriers to illegally enter the stadium like the rest of the British media or discuss it? Like the Euros final, it's an alarming trend where British fans think the rules don't apply to them. Most questions have not been asked. You know, that, that was... If I'm if I'm trying to be fair on all the correspondence we had, most we've had a terrible experience. The, clearly, Rob, the issue is if 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 the authorities can find one or two people doing this, then they can use that as their um, excuse for all their actions. And that's what we saw from the interior minister last night, from the sports minister. They were very quick to go on Twitter to post about there being thousands of England fans, English fans, being to blame for this. And yes, undoubtedly, there are some videos showing some pockets of Liverpool fans perhaps trying to get in. But the majority, the vast majority that we were watching, particularly in the key time approaching kickoff, the sort of half an hour or so before kickoff, there were just thousands of Liverpool fans waiting in line, speaking to us of their frustration, but just waiting and waiting to be filtered and sort of exasperated by the authorities and their inability to be able to sort of filter them into the stadium. So that was largely the experience of just watching how they were, you know, the systems were just struggling to cope and maybe it does come down to things like the barcode ticket system, the fact you have to get your phone out, find where the app is and go through to find the code. Then it has to be scanned by the um, steward on the gate. So that does create extra delays potentially within that process. But the question is why those checks again were only taking place so close to the uh, the stadium. And there did seem to be a sort of general lack of staff. You didn't get the people on them. Um, you know, 
megaphone shouting out announcements, reassuring messages, which we can often get around sort of English sports venues, whether it's, you know, horse racing as well as football, you know, lots of people at least just to calm things down if there is a bit of frustration as well, just to inform what's going on. Can I ask, lads, um, Johnson and Rob, and this is going to sound like an insinuation, but it isn't. It is genuine curiosity. Why did Real Madrid's fans not have similar problems? It's a different side of the ground, so uh, you wouldn't be approaching it from that same access route to the southwest. So I, I think that's the basic reason that, that, that their access routes weren't as, as narrow. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, it, it may be there were, there were fewer fans there who had... You know, cat for tickets. If cat for tickets were an issue, I don't know, but I think fundamentally it's just the way the ground is laid out. And I also think you know this this excuse from from the authorities about well, some fans try to push their way in or jump fences. That can't be a surprise to them. Like if you're going to put on a game, you have to take that into account, and that's why you have to filter this much earlier. Uh, and I think it's it's hugely worrying that the final of the Euros this. And to be honest, in in Seville last week. Uh, well, a uh, week before last now, wasn't it? Uh, for the Rangers Antwerp Frankfurt game. That was. Rangers fans there behaved astonishingly well, given how many of them there were. And that could easily have gone off. You know, the, the, there was a, a terrible lack of, of organisation and, and, and signage at the stadium. I mean, the number of Rangers fans I saw there, and it's only Rangers fans because where the press box was happened to be more Rangers fans there, wandering about going, where's my seat? I don't know where my seat is. And you know, they'd see us wearing a lanyard and assume we we knew we knew something, which obviously we didn't. But I, the 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 way that these these big fans have been put on post COVID have all been shambolic. Uh, Liverpool released a statement saying we're hugely disappointed at the stadium entry issues and breakdown of security perimeter that Liverpool fans faced this evening at the Stade de France. This is the greatest match in European football. Supporters should not have to experience the scenes we've witnessed tonight. We have officially requested a formal investigation into the causes of these unacceptable issues. Joey says, are you looking forward to UEFA launching their own full-scale investigation and then finding absolutely no wrongdoing? What 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 happens now, Rob? Well, um, there's never actually been a public UEFA investigation into the Wembley disorder as well. You think it might have been useful for them to look from their own organisational sense of how the preparation went. We had a thorough report obviously from the FA which cast a lot of blame on England fans and you know that was obviously quite difficult for them to have to talk through but yeah nothing from the FA uh, UEFA on that and I think it comes down to how they're dealing with the local authorities and actually future events in France and to pick up these um, learnings if there are any there just weren't many UEFA staff around it was all local police and stewards perhaps there should have been more police from England potentially staff from Liverpool which could have actually helped to act as a sort of um, intermediary in terms of communication, not that the liability is on them to do so. You would you would hope that the police could be able to secure the area and the stadium organisers could be able to sort of get a system in place that would allow them to be able to get in okay. And uh, I think obviously a lack of communication was just quite a theme of what was going on and also just the fact that there was disregard for the fans who were absolutely completely blameless, those just waiting, like the asthmatic Liverpool fan who talked of her experience to me about being tear gassed, being caught up in this when all she was doing was waiting to get into the stadium and she was waving a ticket at me, showing that, look, we're just, we're just here. We've been here for hours trying to, to get in. So, you know, there are clearly some struggles and this is also a stadium that always has a lot of space around it. It's not like Wembley where one of the issues around the Euros final was how hemmed in the stadium is with the shopping centre or the um, apartment blocks and everything right nearby. 
Stade de France does have those sort of big open spaces. There were roads block, blocked off. There were the shops that were closed that would normally be open, like a fitness centre right near the uh, the entrances for the Liverpool fans. So that space perhaps wasn't maximised for use to ensure a, a, you know, a better system. I mean, the one thing I'd say about that, Rob, is though there is that really busy road, the... Uh, it's called the Avenue de N, I think the the the, the, you know, the six lane road, and that does create a problem that you have to go through an underpass to get there. But that and that 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 I think is why it was the issues were with Liverpool fans because that was the side they were approaching from. The other side is much more open. Um, but as I say, I think you, they they could have done checks much nearer the RER station, which would have filtered out a lot of a lot of issues if if the issue was people turning up without valid tickets. Um, look, some messages, you know, tweets from look, people we know and trust and like you know Kelly Kate saying oh it's fans with fake tickets now is it UEFA who's responsible for ticketing who's responsible for making sure the tickets are checked before they even get near a turnstile at a major event complete abdication of responsibility we've been here before Carl Clements the Liverpool historian said that's it for me game over not asked about me but my nine year old suffered the effects of tear gas after the match a football match the police were throwing them for fun I got hit directly so toxic definitely not a place for kids uh, football is finished um, it, so it's just it's worth bearing in mind that most of these Liverpool fans paid money to go to this game. A lot of money. Those tickets aren't cheap. And I've seen it said they were treated like animals. Animals don't get tear gas fired at them. They get herded. Yeah, cattle, you know, get herded into pens and whatnot. They don't get tear gas. And if you tear gassed animals, you would be uh, subjected to the full force of the law for being cruel. What should have been the experience of a lifetime for many of those people, win, lose or draw, well, they weren't going to draw, win or lose, um, has been, you know, so many of them seem to have had an absolutely horrible time. And that's just, it's just not right. It's not right. It's not acceptable. And I, like, I suppose, Rob, nobody got seriously injured as far as we know, which when you start hearing about crushes and bottlenecks before the game, you know, I was on air, you, you're obviously working, you start to get really fearful. And so... Although it's not a positive, because this is a pretty desperate situation, that is just one thing to cling to, I guess. Yeah, the fact that some fans I was speaking to were finding it quite traumatic experiencing it, given their their past experiences going to Liverpool games many years ago as well. They were reflecting on that as the uh, the situation was unfolding to me as well. And we are, as it seems now, thankful that there was nothing serious that seems to be in terms of injuries last night. But, you know, there hugely was the potential... For to be particularly the way the situation also is being inflamed by that tear gas pepper spray that was being deployed and you, you know you can see the way it was in areas where perhaps there were other ways of policing it to disperse the crowds if they wanted to to warn off perhaps if there were you know greater numbers that you know there were fans not fans i would say there were people local people perhaps i could see the ones trying to climb over the fence where you know perhaps there weren't enough numbers just to go in and use that form of policing rather than just firing off um, uh, tear gas. Uh, Rob, thanks so much, mate. Appreciate your time. Good to speak, guys. Uh, Rob Harris there uh, from AP. Uh, And that'll do for part two. Uh, Part three will round up uh, any other business. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's talk about the National League semi-final. Um, Wrexham 4, Grimsby 5. Uh, one all at half time, and then the game got ridiculous. 1 2, 2 2, 3 2, 3 3, 3 4, 4, 4, 4, 5. Last minute of extra time. Barry, as you said, the most entertaining game you saw yesterday. It's one of the most entertaining games I've ever seen. It reminded me of the Charlton Sunderland game in 97, was it? Or 98, the playoff final. It was just incredible. It had everything goals. Uh, penalties, a hand of God goal that shouldn't have been given, controversial decisions, some astonishing, uh, a couple of astonishing goals and uh, some extremely questionable refereeing. Um, Wrexham, obviously owned by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. They didn't get the, the Hollywood ending they were hoping for, so they lost the FA Trophy last weekend, got knocked out of the National League playoffs yesterday, but so they basically just nicked the plot of one of those Sunderland documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a truly outstanding game of football. Uh, I, I just loved every minute of it. And Phil Parkinson, the Wrexham manager afterwards, was absolutely furious with the referee. He really didn't hold back. But the fact of the matter is, Wrexham got a penalty they shouldn't have got. And they also were given a goal that was a blatant handball by your old friend Paul Mullen, uh, Max. I don't know, did you have a little chuckle at, at Wrexham's expense because they nicked your star striker? Well, no. I, I, that's the interesting thing, John, isn't it? That, that when, when Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney came into Wrexham, I think there was this genuine, genuine positivity about... Look, here are some people who seem nice, who are doing the right thing, you know, who aren't a petro-state, you know... Ryan Reynolds' human rights record, as far as I know, is pretty good. <laughs> and so there was like sort of positivity about it. But it, the way football fandom works is it doesn't take long for people to sort of point and laugh and go, not as easy as you thought it would be, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, um, I mean, I allowed myself a laugh. Uh, but uh, I, I, last week, yeah, the FA Trophy, there was, I think they scored an offside goal. And there was footage of uh, the... The, the Hollywood contingent, including, I believe, Sir David of Beckham, uh, all celebrating a goal that was clearly offside. Everyone else in the stadium had noticed was offside, but there was this sort of point: like, do these do these guys even know that, that what offside is? Yeah, you know, and and, <laughs> and 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 the I suppose the inverse snobbery that uh, in football means that uh, that idea of there not being a Hollywood ending is exactly the ending that everyone else wants. For for, for yeah. a club like that, and uh, the, you know, I'm sure that the, the documentary series is going to be really very interesting. But and um, I'm told actually uh, that one of the reasons that they uh, decided to go on this this journey is watching the Sunderland documentary. So there you go. Is that right? Yes. And I mean, look, the interesting thing as well is it doesn't matter what level of football you're at. Like you know, when you when you're sort of look at it. You know, in sort of the macro terms, you know, Wrexham are a small club. Isn't it great they've got this money? But suddenly if you're, you know, like Charlie Baker, who I work with on TalkSport, you know, he's a Torquay fan. He's like, I don't want another club with money in the National League. I don't need these money bags bastards buying, you know, Paul Mullen came from, what, we, we went up to League One. They got Ben Tozer from um, 
uh, who was Ben Tozer playing for? Cheltenham, wasn't it? I think with the long throw. Um, you know, that you know that is like that's like sort of Newcastle buying Kieran Trippier. You know, a, 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 you know a La Liga winner at right back. You know, they're going. This isn't fair. This is, you know, this isn't how it should be. Yeah, it's like so. Salford City, you know, the, the Nevilles, the, the class of 92. They, I mean, you speak to fans of, of teams in that division. The team they all really like to beat is Gary Neville's Salford City. And and for that same yeah. reason, that celeb factor. Uh, Grimsby will now face Solly Holmes or Chesterfield, uh, uh, as you know. Well, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been plugged during the 92nd minute of the Champions League final. Where, where can I watch that, no, Max? <laughs> you can watch it on BT Sport at midday. I mean, that was the thing. We had the BT commentary. Our poor Australian viewers, they won't be getting that at midday, will they? Um, uh, 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 the final is uh, on the 5th of June at London, the London Stadium. Um, also, well done to Port Vale. Um, Port Vale fans, I presume we don't talk about you a lot on this podcast. Um, congratulations to Robbie Williams and the rest of you. Phil uh, Taylor. A big moment. Yeah. Phil Taylor as well, of course. Yeah. Is he Vale? I always thought he was Stoke. Definitely, he's definitely Vale, definitely. I watched that game as well. It was the least entertaining of the three games I saw yesterday, but it's hard for your the cockles of your heart not to be warm by that Port Vale win with all due respect to Nigel Clough and Mansfield because the Port Vale manager Daryl Clark lost his daughter in February uh, he was on a an extended compassionate leave and came back recently and he was incredibly emotional after the game and dedicated the win to his daughter Ellie so um, you know all the best to him and, and everyone else at Port Vale uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the championship playoff final is today. We're recording on a Sunday, so uh, there's no pod on the Monday. We will look back at this uh, on the next pod, which I think is a, a mailbag on Wednesday. Uh, Daniel says, uh, thoughts on the A-League grand final? Yeah, well done to Western United, who beat Melbourne City. They were the two teams who were in the grand final, so my uh, rep- reporting of this tournament is getting more impressive by the podcast. Uh, yeah, they went one up very early. Uh, and then uh, got a second and I went to bed at half time. So <laughs> I think it finished 2-0. I definitely know that Western United won the game. As I said before, it's a long way away, Australia. How are we meant to keep up with all this football? But but well done to West United. They're a pretty new team in the A-League. The one thing that I did spot or that has happened, it's been quite controversial over here, is they... They have advert breaks when goals are scored. So oh. that was a big kind of... Yeah, I know. And... Uh, this has been happening all season. I tweeted about it yesterday and everyone in the office was like, this has been happening all season. Why are you talking about it now? We all know. Yeah, so there's sort of barely a replay and then they just have an advert, which, you know, could be a portent of what might happen uh, elsewhere around the world, but but hopefully not. Um, but look, that was a, a good win for them. Um, and this is from Will, who says, um, can John... Well, first he mentioned Jonathan Wilson's incredibly Mackham voice note after Sunderland's <laughs> playoff victory, where he was absolutely he'd, he'd spent ten hours in the company of Mackhams, and it was honestly Wilson. It was an absolute joy to hear you talk like that. I mean, yeah, if you put me with with Mackhams again, it will happen again. Yeah. It was like Dermot Gallagher. It was like <laughs> it was just a sudden change. Anyway, Will says, can John defend Neil Young from Barry's outrageous? quote, busker who got lucky jibe a few pods back. Would some busker 
be able to play Cortez the Killer or Cowgirl in the Sand. Did Barry really say that? Yeah? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to be honest there. I made a mistake. Busker who got lucky is more Bob Dylan. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, Neil Young has done the old, you know, one-man band type of thing. But, no, Neil Young is a, is a brilliant, brilliant guitarist. Uh, uh, his singing might not be for, to everyone's taste, but... As I look at my vinyl collection, I've got a lot of Neil Young records. Cortez the Killer is a prime cut. Um, and when he plays... And the thing is with Neil Young, he has this thing where um, he sounds like he shouldn't be very good at the guitar because it's all very chaotic, but he makes it sound absolutely brilliant. Like it's a, it's almost like self-taught. You can tell that it's Neil Young playing a guitar as soon as you hear it. Uh, yeah, the, guy, the guy's a genius. Uh, he's made some very bad records too but that's because he's made records for 50 years. But um, yeah, yeah, I love Neil Young, yeah. Thank you, John. We've set the record straight because unbelievably that upset more people than most of the things we say about football <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, on Wednesday, we're recording a mailbag episode uh, answering all your questions. So send them in, please. Uh, anything you like, serious, silly, um, as creative as you want to be, Weekly at theguardian.com. But that'll do for today. Thank you, Jonathan Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Thank you, John Bruin. Thanks, Max Rushton. Thanks, Barry Glendenny. Thank you. I'll see you on the radio in about an hour, Barry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we'll doing the whole thing all over again. Well, we'll repeat what John Bruin and Jonathan Wilson say, but say it before this pod is published. <laughs> so we appear like we know what we're talking about. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.